Let me ask you a question, all right, as we get started today. You don't have to yell this out to me, but I'm going to ask you to kind of share it with somebody around you. What is one place in the world that you want to visit, but you haven't yet gotten there? So what's one place in the world that you want to visit, but you haven't yet gotten there? All right. Tell somebody around you real quick what that is. All right. All right. Anybody have a good one? Somebody shared with them. Apparently not. All right. Anybody have a good place? Somebody shared with them that they want to go. Italy. We got two Italy's at the same time. Look at that, right? I'd love to go to Rome. You know, I've always been fascinated with Italian food, basically. Uh, that's what I want to go to Rome for. All right, let's be honest about it, right? Colosseum, church history, all that kind of stuff would be cool. Or anybody else? England, all right? Australia. Who said somebody said that over there, right? All right. You know, when I look back on my life, and I, I sometimes talk, uh, I had this conversation with Eli uh, about a year ago. Um, when I look back on my life, when I was growing up, I didn't go anywhere at all. Like vacations were literally three days in St. Louis for Cardinals games, or one year we went to Hot Springs, Arkansas. You ever been to Hot Springs, Arkansas? A couple of you have, the rest of you haven't because there's no real reason to go to Hot Springs, Arkansas, right? They had an amusement park there, and that was our vacations. Like I didn't go anywhere. First time I ever saw the ocean, this is, this tells you how churchy my life has been. The first time I ever saw an ocean, I was on a music search committee for my home church. And we flew to see a guy on the eastern seaboard and we, I saw the Atlantic Ocean. First time I was ever from Florida was after I graduated from high school. Like we didn't go anywhere. So my list of places I want to go was really long. Now, I've been fortunate. I mean, God has blessed me with the jobs that I've had and with mission trips and those kind of things to go to some really cool spots. I've been to, you know, I've seen the Christ statue. I've seen Sugarloaf Mountain. I've been on Copacabana Beach in Brazil. Um, I've been to Los Angeles, California and, and seen Santa Monica Pier. I've been to Washington, D.C. and walked around those national monuments. And so as I've grown older, my traveling has been much better. But I still got a place I'd love to see. I'd love to go to Italy. I'd love to go to the Holy Land. I've never been to the Holy Land. I'd love to go to England and Europe. There's one place in particular I want to go, not because, not, not even, there's a city I want to go to, but there's a reason I'd love to go to this city, and it's not on my travel agenda anytime soon, but I'd just love to go to this place because I'm fascinated by people that are great at what they do. And this place has more examples of people being great at what they do than anywhere else in the world. It's this. Anybody know what that is? The Louvre, right? In Paris, France, all right? And so this is the Louvre Museum. It houses some of the world's greatest masterpieces, all right? And so it has, I mean, there's so much stuff here. I, I saw this from a guide that is there that said, if you took one second to look at every piece of art or artifact, in that museum, one second, and you did that 24 hours a day, it would take you three weeks to see everything in there. Think about that. One second, 24 hours a day, three weeks to see everything in there. And so what happens is people don't see on a one-day trip everything that's in there. So they have to kind of focus on what's there. And what's the biggest attraction at this museum? Does anybody know? The Mona Lisa, right? And the Mona Lisa is there, and people, I mean, they, they, millions of people every year come to see the Mona Lisa. Well, to see the Mona Lisa, 
you have to go down. This is all obviously stuff I've read because I haven't been there. You have to go down this this hallway. And this hallway is called the Grand Gallery. And on this hallway of the Grand Gallery, there are masterpieces, literal masterpieces on the walls lining the hallway down to get to the corner where you turn to go into the room where you can finally see the Mona Lisa. And so you're on your way there. You're just seeing these works of art that have been masterpieces for hundreds of years. And in the middle of the gallery, as you're going down the master's gallery, in the middle of that, there is one painting sitting in the very middle of that gallery. Just like this. You can see the sides, or these are masterpieces, impressionists, renaissance painters, all kinds of stuff, just lining it. And in the middle is this one painting. You're like, well, what's that one painting doing in the middle of the hallway? Doesn't make any sense. Why is it not on the wall? Well, it's not on the wall because we'll kind of show you on this on the next slide. It has a front side and there's the same painting from the rear view on the back. And so it is a two sided painting. And so they have to put it out in the middle because obviously you put it on the wall. You can't see one side of it. Here's what's fascinating about it, all right? Anybody want to guess what the painting is? Here's the front. That's David. That's Goliath. Now, it's not biblically accurate. Artistic people take liberties with that sometimes, right? I mean, it's not, how do we know it's not biblically accurate? Because Goliath's looking at him. And Goliath wasn't looking at him when David cut his head off, Right? But it's this picture from the front of David on top of Goliath. And then actually from the back, you see it's a different angle. You see the sling, some kind of slingshot and a rock here. And he's getting ready to cut his head off, right? Now, here's what's fascinating. It's not the only painting in that Louvre, in the painting uh, area. It's not the only one of David and Goliath. There are many paintings of David and Goliath throughout that museum. Here's my favorite that I saw this week, all right? Now, I don't know if you can see what's over here on the right, so we're going to zoom in just a little bit. All right? So that's David. I have no idea what the feather has to do with anything. All right? No no clue what the feather has to do. I do know what these are. These are supposed to represent lion and bear's hides. Remember David killed a lion and a bear while he was out with the sheep? And then, look, I just love the way he's casually glancing at the severed head of Goliath. Right? With the stone impression right in the forehead. You can go past that. Here's what I thought, alright? The Louvre has 10 million people visit every year. 10 million people. And my guess is, and I don't have any statistics on this, so we're just going to go with it. That about 95% of the people that go to that museum go to see one painting. And they go to see the Mona Lisa because if you go to that museum and you don't see the Mona Lisa, you've kind of missed out. And so let's say, because there may be 500,000 that they've seen the Mona Lisa and they're done with their smile and they don't care. So they go somewhere else. But if you're going to see the Mona Lisa, nine and a half million people walk past those two paintings of David and Goliath on the way to see her. This is what I thought this week. How many millions of people walk by those paintings and don't have the slightest clue about the significance of the event that is depicted? 
You know, apparently there was some time in the history of the world when David and Goliath paintings were like really in, and so everybody was commissioning David and Goliath paintings. But what's the chance that that many people walk past it and the significant majority, high percentage, don't understand it? And I know that's possible because I, for years and years and years, read the story of David and Goliath and missed the true significance and essence of what it is about and what it means for us. It is more than just some simple underdog story. It's more than some just simple story about a boy taking on a giant. It has at its core a message to us. Remember, we've talked about this over the last few weeks, that we are not David in the story. Jesus is David. And Jesus has already defeated every giant, every obstacle, every problem that we might face in life. We just have to come to the place that we accept what he's done and live in the victory he's provided. So we've talked about the fact that Jesus has already overcome fear and anxiety and worry and comfort and guilt and shame and regret and fear and anger. And today we're going to finish it all talking about Jesus overcoming rejection. Now the scripture underneath all of this for the entire time has been that he has come to give us life and give it more abundantly. And what we're going to do today is look, okay, what does that look like when we are overcoming rejection or any of its cousins, insecurity or low self-esteem or low self-worth or inferiority or even those type A personalities that are doing everything they can to make up for some perceived inferiority or some perceived insecurity, self-hate and self-loathing. This is one of those that at first it might say, I don't know, that's a big deal. But the truth is, every single one of us has been rejected or live with the fear of rejection. Now, if you want to follow along with the Scripture, if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 139. If you want to follow along online, if you've got a smartphone, you can click and just go to fpcgillsville.com slash rejection and all the Scripture from today. And the points a little different than what they will be when I say them, but the main points will be there today as well. But fpcgillsville.com slash rejection. And what we want to talk about today is how do we overcome those moments when people in our world tell us we're not good enough, we're not strong enough, we're not capable enough, we're not wanted enough, we're not worthy enough, we're not smart enough. And understand that words have impact in our lives. And the few words from significant people in our lives can dominate how we see and think about ourselves. I was thinking about it this week, and there were a couple of things just immediately came to mind. Isn't it amazing how we can remember things in our lives that were negative influences so easily? I mean, a couple of things just came into my mind real quickly. When I was growing up, I loved baseball. Baseball was my sport. I still love watching baseball, but I love playing baseball. I really thought I had a shot to be really good at baseball. Um, we'll talk about in a minute the, the way that you, we, as a child, we could delude ourselves back in my era that's different today. All right? I mean, I thought I could be really good at baseball. I mean, I was, I batted cleanup on my Kitty League baseball team, my Dixie Youth baseball team. I always helped lead the, I led the league in homers one year. I led the league in, in average, uh, one year. I mean, I, I thought I was pretty good. And my, one of my coaches was my uncle. And my uncle and I have a great relationship. We still have a great relationship. He's a great man. Um, but I remember one day just sitting down and talking to him, telling him my dreams. You know how you tell people your dreams? Like, man, one day, you know, when I get to high school, I'll play high school ball. And then, like, some scout's going to come watch me. And then I'm going to get drafted. You know, like, you just laid it all out there like kids do. 
I just remember him looking at me and go, well, you've got to work on some things if that's going to happen. I was like, okay, man, I'll work on what is it. And he goes, well, Lyle, um, you'll never be really good because you're too slow. I'm like, oh, okay, so that's kind of real. That's kind of in the moment, right? And he said, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you out in the backyard, and you're going to run with ankle weights on. That's going to speed you up. And I tell you, there is no proof that that ever works. It just makes for a miserable summer, all right? But here's the thing, okay? So those words kind of stuck into me. You're too slow for that. And I still think about that today. You know, here's the crazy thing, okay? I mean, I am obviously past my desire to be a Major League Baseball player. Like, I barely make it on our Team B softball here at First Baptist, all right? The time has passed me. But here's the thing. One of my recurring nightmares, you know those things that wake you up at night, and you're like, why do I keep dreaming that? One of my recurring nightmares is that I hit a ball to the gap that goes to the wall, and I get thrown out at first base. Because I can't, like I'm moving in quicksand, right? Like it just doesn't happen. Just a simple word from somebody that I knew and loved. Right? When I was in seminary, when you're in seminary, you're trained to be a pastor. Uh, you take two classes on preaching, okay? It's mandatory, required. Everybody takes these two classes on preaching. Now, in other classes, you may have to preach, but you take these two classes. You take a class on constructing a sermon. So we spend a whole semester talking about how to build a sermon, how to construct it, how to do it, and then you leave and you don't remember any of that, all right? But you spend that. The second one you do is you do a preaching lab which sounds like science, it's not, all right? You get up and you preach, and you have 15 people in your class, and every class period is somebody preaching. And then while you're preaching, your other 15 classmates are sitting there grading you, okay? Now, you may do that every week. I just don't realize you're doing it every week, all right? And so they're writing down, oh, that, mm, that wasn't a very good introduction, or that wasn't very good, or that point was not good. And they literally write down an evaluation as you're doing it. And so you'll be up there preaching and say something, and you'll see eight people go, hmm, and start writing. You're like, oh, that wasn't good. I don't know what that was, right? And then afterwards, you meet with your professor, and he hands out the evaluations and says, you know, I look through your evaluations, and here are two or three points that you need to be aware of that kind of came out of evaluations. It's, it's all constructive criticism is what they say. But I remember sitting across from him, and he went through all that, and I had pretty, I had, I had decent kind of reviews from classmates. They weren't too hard on me. Um, I suddenly felt bad about the way I treated them and my evaluations, right? No, I was nice to him. And then, and then he looks at me. This is my professor, okay? This is a guy that sees hundreds of preaching students a year. And he says to me, now, uh, Lyle, uh, your goal is to be a pastor someday? I said, yeah, that's kind of what I feel called to do. And he goes, and a part of that, you, you feel like you'll be preaching every week. I said, yeah, I'm not going to really farm that out. That's kind of what I'm supposed to be doing. He says, okay, okay. He said, um, just, can I give you a little note? I'm like, sure, give me a note. He goes, your voice sits in the tenor range. And after about 10 minutes of it, it can become a little irritating and grating. <laughs> and you might want to be aware of that as you preach. I was like, well, what do I do about that? I can't, ch-. I mean, I remember sitting in this, I literally remember sitting in this, I was going, uh, and what would you expect me? And like, my voice started getting higher, like, well, I don't know. What? But it stuck. I mean, I can, I can in my mind see that situation. And it goes back to this reality that a few words from somebody whose opinion we care about 
or maybe we don't even really care about, can have an impact on our lives. How do we deal with that? How do we move past that? We live in a world that is designed to make us compare ourselves to other people. We live in a world that's consistently showing us that we're not good enough, we're not beautiful enough, we're not wanted enough, we're not worthy enough, we're not smart enough. As we think about the story of David and Goliath, we're going to start there. We're going to get to Psalm 139. If you've got your Bible open today, we'll get there real shortly. But when we look at the story of David and Goliath, one of the underrated parts of David and Goliath is how David had people trying to discourage him from doing what he knew he was supposed to do by attacking who he was. In fact, over in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see three people that try to convince David to stop going after Goliath because he's not good enough. The first one we talked in depth about last week, so we're not going to talk about it much at all today. But in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 33, Eliab comes to him and it says that when David came, when Eliab heard that David was there, I think we've got that on the screen, maybe down in the notes a little bit, John. There it is. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, Why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep? I know your presumption of the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. So David gets there. He hears people talking about Goliath. He says, why isn't somebody going after him? What do you get if you kill him? And then Eliab hears him and says, quit, David. You're not good enough to do this. You're not old enough to do this. You're not strong enough to do this. You're not big enough to do this. You're not experienced enough to do this. You're not capable enough to do this. You're never going to do that. Don't go getting crazy ideas about what you think you can do. Your hopes, don't get your hopes up. Don't Think that it's going to happen. David, you're never going to amount to anything more than the little guy that takes care of the sheep. I don't care what that prophet told you last time he was at our house. You're not going to be a big time guy. You're not good enough. That's from his brother. That's from his family. I love how David just looks at him and says, what do you care? There's words. And it says he goes and immediately starts asking those questions again. Hey, what do you get if you kill this guy? Why is nobody going to him? So finally David says, well, nobody else is going to do it. I'm going to go. And he goes to Saul and he tells Saul, hey, Saul, I'm going to go kill Goliath. Hey, you've been looking for a man. I'm here. And this is Saul's response to David. And Saul said to David, you can't do that. You're, you're too young. You've been a man of war from his youth. Goliath has. You haven't fought anybody. I mean, you're too young. You're too incapable. You're too weak. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not good enough. Never mount anything. Don't get your hopes up. This isn't going to happen. David, you can't do it. David said, well, he killed a bear and a lot. And Saul's like, okay, go try. Right? David just says, listen, it's not about me. It's about my God. But I've done this. I can go fight him. So David goes out to the battlefield. And so he's felt rejection. He's felt inferiority coming at him from his brother and from his king, from the guy in authority, from the guy that's ruler over Israel. And then he comes out to Goliath and Goliath looks at him and says, when the Philistine looked at him and saw David, he disdained him. He hated him for he was but a youth. He's too young. Like, what are they doing? It's an insult that they send this guy to fight me. Ruddy and handsome. It just means he was a good looking boy. But it also means that he looked like a boy. You don't send a boy to do a man's fight, right? Goliath's like, what are you sending this boy out here? He's young. He's a handsome. He's a pretty boy. Pretty boy ain't going to do anything with me. 
In fact, he says, am I a dog? You come at me with sticks? It's like you've just thrown something out there. Philistine cursed David by his gods. And then he says to him, David, it's okay. I'm going to come to me. I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. You're too pretty, David. You ain't got a chance in this fight. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not seasoned enough. Like, I've waited 40 days and this is what you send? I just wonder how many of you have ever felt the words of rejection or inferiority from a family member, from a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or an uncle or an aunt. You'll never be able to do that. Don't get your hopes up. I mean, what makes you think you'll be able to do that? From a dad or a mom that consistently pointed out your flaws and your weaknesses instead of encouraging who you are. I wonder how many of you from an authority figure, a boss, or somebody you respected, or a mentor, like Saul was to David, have you ever heard words of rejection, words of inferiority? I wonder how many of you from um, someone that's really kind of against you, maybe somebody at work that's trying to take your promotion, or somebody that just for some reason doesn't like you, have ever heard those words of rejection and inferiority? The question that we have to ask is, okay, so how do we get past all that? How do we live in the midst of that? Not to mention that the world we're surrounded by continually tells us that we're not good enough, we're not strong enough, that our advertising is built around the idea that we need just a little bit something else in order to be better, in order to strive more, in order to gain more, in order to do more. What I love about David is he doesn't let any of that deter him from doing what God called him to do. And here's the reason. Because David came to that battle from a place of complete acceptance. Psychologists have said, and I'm not a psychologist, but I've read this, that the most powerful force in relationships in our lives is acceptance. And that we will be around people who are not good for us, who aren't best for us, who we, who we understand are not what we need them to be for us. You hear people all the time, why are you still in that relationship? You know he's no good for you. You know she's no good for you. Why are you still friends with them? Parents all the time with kids that are like friends with people. You're like, why are you friends with those people? They're not good for your spiritual walk. They're not helping you be a better person. They're taking you down. And what you hear all the time is, yeah, but they, the, what they are saying with maybe not even their words is, but they accept me. And they love me and they care for me and they know me. And if we're going to face the battle of insecurity, if we're going to face the battle of rejection in our own lives, we have to come from it from a place of ultimate acceptance, which gets us to Psalm 139. We're going to look at this psalm very quickly. It's one of my favorite psalms. I used to preach when I preached uh, early on in my life. I used to start every sermon with a portion of this psalm we'll talk about at the very end. I love this psalm, but I love what it teaches. And what Psalm 139 reminds us of is that we will never find acceptance until we first understand and believe in the acceptance that God has for us. Psalm 139, David's psalm, the very one who stood in the place. Some people think that he actually wrote this before he fought Goliath and that this was his psalm of assurance in himself. And as he stood before Goliath, he knew these things to be true and that is what gave him confidence to go forward. Psalm 139, he starts by telling us that we need to realize that God knows us. God knows us. Look at what it says in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. I've highlighted the words for you in here that have some sort of knowing, of searching, of finding. The idea here is that David is saying, you know absolutely everything about me. In fact, in some ways, when you read the first part of this psalm, it almost seems like David's writing this for somebody that's teaching school and has told him he can't use the word no every time. And so he's like there with this thesaurus, like, well, I don't know, acquainted works really well here. That means to know, right? And so you know when I sit down, you discern, you know my thoughts. You know my path, my lying down. You know all my ways. He's saying, God, you know everything about me. He goes on in the next verse to say, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it. I think I've told you when I was a kid, I used to go in circles with that. Like God knew I was going to think that thought. (laughs) And then God knew that I was going to think about the fact that he knew that I was going to think that thought. And then God knew that I was going to think about the fact that he knew that I was going to think about the fact that he knew I was going to think about that thought. Like it's like those things where you get mirrors like bouncing off of each other and it's just infinite. Like Man, it just blow, well, maybe me, maybe it didn't make anything to you, but I could blow my mind as a 17 year old, right? He says, You hem me in. You're behind me and behind me and before me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You have to realize that God knows you. He knows you intimately, He knows your heart, He knows your fears, He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows your dreams. He knows your frustrations. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He understands you when you're frustrated, when you're afraid, when you feel like nobody going nowhere, when you wonder what in the world is going on. He knows. God knows everything about you. He are You are always on his mind. Before you get up, he is already thinking about you. While you are asleep, he is still watching over you. He already knows what the day holds before you get up and know what the day holds. He understands you more intimately than you understand yourself. He knows why you operate the way you operate and think the way you think and do the things you do. He knows every single thing about you. David says, that almost is too much for me. Because here's the deal. (laughs) If God knows everything about me, there's some stuff I'm not real happy he knows. Amen? If he knows every thought and every motive and every emotion and every word and every action, man, there are parts of me that are highly unlikable if you know them intimately like God does. And yet scripture says this little phrase in the midst of all this, because if it's just that God knows us, you know what? That's really not that comforting. If it's just, hey man, he knows, he knows everything you thought yesterday. There are a lot of us who are not like, Woo! <laughs> man, I'm glad about that. But there's a little phrase in here that we can lose if we don't know what it means. And it's right there when he says, you lay your hand upon me. Now, when I was growing up, my grandmother used to talk about laying hands on people. And it wasn't what it's talking about here. All right. What it means here is the Old Testament example of blessing. And when an older man was coming to the end of his life, he would gather his family around and he would call forth his firstborn son. He would actually call forth all of his sons. There's this beautiful scene of this with um, 
in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, where the twelve, they, they all twelve are having their hands laid upon. And he will speak a blessing into their lives. And he would lay hands upon them and he would say, you are my beloved son. And this is God's plan for you. And I trust that you are going to fulfill it. And the picture here is God knows every intimate detail of our lives. And he still lays his hands upon us and says, you are my beloved child. I care about you. And I want you to know. Which leads to the second thing the Psalms tells us. And that is we need to rejoice that we have a God that pursues us with an all-encompassing, never-ending love. Rejoice that we have a God that's going to pursue us with an all-encompassing, never-ending love. Look what it says in the next part of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of the earth, you're there. He goes on to say, if I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. He goes on. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. He says, I can't get away from you. In fact, he lists all the potential escape routes and says, you're already there. You are going to be consistently seeking me. I can't help when I read this, but to think of two Old Testament stories. One is the story of Jonah, who God says, I need you to go to Nineveh. I need you to tell people about my judgment. And Jonah gets on a ship and goes as far away as he thinks he can get from Nineveh. And in the midst of that ship, he's in the midst of a storm. And he says, what's going on? And he says, my God found me. He knows where I am. I can't get away. Or think about the story of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer, who was a prostitute. Hosea marries the prostitute. She leaves him. And every time she leaves him, God says, go get her. Go get her. Buy her back. Purchase her back. Bring her back. And the whole time God is saying, that is me with you, Israel. You want to leave? You want to run? You want to get away? You are never getting away from my unending, never-ending, all-encompassing love. And what this scripture reminds us of, and what scripture reminds us of over and over and over again, is that the God who is in a different category altogether, darkness is light to him, night is day to him, he is holy and perfect and above anything we can imagine. That God still finds each and every one of us desirable and wanted. Scripture will describe us as beloved, chosen, holy, dearly loved, apple of his eye. I mean, do you remember what it was like the first time you realized someone liked you? Like, not like, 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 liked you. Like maybe it was that somebody's friend told her friend that told her friend that told your friend that told your friend that told you that it happened. But that's that moment of, you mean she, she likes me? Or if you're with your spouse, do you remember that first time you thought, I mean, they actually like me. They've chosen me. Now imagine that to the infinite level of the God of the universe has liked and chosen you. And when you do that, Psalm 139 reminds us to revel at the miracle of his creation and of yours. Psalm 139 tells us that we are to revel in the miracle of who we are. Look at what it says. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's an intimate term of actual work, 
of working together on something. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He goes on to say this. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And then he says this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. He says in this passage, we are not the product of human love, although that is the means that God chose to bring us into this world. But Scripture teaches us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we were created in the mind and the heart of God before we ever were created into the physical beings that we are, and that God doesn't make junk, God doesn't make trash, God doesn't make rejects, God doesn't make mistakes. There's a song by one of my favorite worship artists named David Crowder that he talks about the song name of the song is Everything Glorious. And the whole course of the song is that, God, you make everything glorious. And I'm yours. So what does that make me? Now, y'all aren't as good as the first service. Because in the first service I said that, and before I could get the last part out of my mouth, Alex Castro, y'all know Alex Castro? Alex Castro yells, we're glorious. I said, amen, brother, we are. Right? But the point is, we are. We are created. Scripture says not only did He create us, but that He chose us before the foundations of the world. Before men rejected you, God went on record as choosing you. Before people decided if you were good enough, God said, you are. You're created. You're chosen. He has purchased you back by the blood of His own Son. You are worth the blood of Jesus. There's a lot of discussion in the political realm right now because one of the candidates won't reveal his net worth. And here's the thing. I don't know what your net worth is. If you just look at the spreadsheet of mine right now, it's not that impressive. But when you realize if your net worth is not what you own, but the price that's been paid for you, my net worth is the blood of Jesus Christ. He chose us. He created us. He purchased us back. And he has a plan for our lives. It says before any day was there, you wrote it. He has a plan for us. And you are vital to his plans. Don't let the world tell you you are inconspicuous or that you don't matter. You have a vital part of God's plan. And you can choose to join him in that. Or you can walk away. And there are people every day that choose to walk away and pursue things that they think will be more significant but lead to a road of destruction. And so the way that we live in a place where our identity is secure is we understand God knows us, that He pursues us, that He created us, chose us, died for us, and has a plan for us. And then we pursue the one who is pursuing you. God's pursuing you. And he wants you. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Or what I started every sermon off with the first two or three years I preached. Because it is an open invitation to God to show you those things that need to change in your life. He starts the whole Psalm 139 off. If you're looking at it, he starts all things. He says, God, you have searched me and you know me. And he gets to Psalm 139, 23, and he says, search me, O God, and know me. It's not that he's somehow forgotten. It's not that God has forgotten. He's saying, God, I want to know what you know about me for my good and for my benefit. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's anything in my life that needs to be cleaned out and lead me in the way everlasting. 
God, I want to join you in this plan that you have for me. I want to live in the acceptance that you've given me in Jesus Christ and his blood. God, search me. Show me what needs to happen. Show me those things you know. Show me who you are and what you love about me. And then show me those things I need to get rid of. And lead me in the way everlasting. If you want to live with security in your life and not insecurity, with acceptance and not rejection, then you live in the knowledge as you are God's child, chosen, created for a purpose. And you walk confidently in that. I had a lot of people after the first service that wanted to, to, to help my ego get rebuilt from the preaching professor that told me that, you know, I could be irritating after. I mean, there were some people that were like, yeah, he's pretty straight on about that. All right. Um, I don't, I don't, and I wouldn't, I didn't tell the story to do that because here's the truth. I mean, I, whatever insecurities I have about myself, I trust that the Lord has called me to do this and I'm going to follow his plan until he shows me that this is not what I'm supposed to do. And that's no different for me because I'm preaching than it is for you living the life that God's called you to live. Whatever insecurities you have, if they are preventing you from doing what God has called you to do, it is definitely not from God. It's from the enemy. And you need to begin to just walk confidently in who you are. Let's pray together.